Welcome to Splunk Your Splunk podcast that's all Splunk and no junk. I am your co-host, Hal, and that is... Oh, man. Man. Nailed it. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm Birch. Uh, it's Opposites Day. This is Splunk Talk, but those aren't our names. And we have a wonderful episode for you today. We have uh, Ryan Kovar joining us today. He is a distinguished strategist. There's a lot of consonants in that. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is episode 33 of season two. And how our last episode or episode suite was back during comp. How have you been since then? Have you recovered? I have. I have. Um, I... I've, I've, there's been a few sessions that I wanted to like go back and consume that I, that I missed at the time. And I've, I've, I'm not great at that. Like I always, ha I always have the best of intentions, like, and this could be any, any video at all. Like it could be a television show or a movie that I missed. It could be a meeting that I meant to attend, you know, wanted to attend, but couldn't, and it was recorded, man. I'm, I'm not great at just like going back and, and watching video. It's me. It's all about me. Like it's something to do with video. I have the same issue and I, I have a, a solution okay. that I'm also not great at, but it was working for a while. Okay. Well, I, sure. I use Plex Media Server. Okay. And so all the meetings I miss, all of them, because I'm busy recording a podcast, yeah. um, I download the, the video files and um, I host them on, on Plex. Okay. And then that way, like when I'm doing the dishes or um, mostly the dishes, I'm, I'm doing a lot of dishes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can put it on and listen to to the meetings in the background. Okay. Are you still living over that Italian restaurant? Are you actually doing their dishes? Uh, yes. Uh, I am also um, continually getting accused of trying to force dogs to kiss each other through a means of spaghetti. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That would generate a lot of dishes, I guess. Yes, it does. Dogs, you would think clean dishes, but uh, they're quite the tramps. Mine does. <laughs> You're talking. Um, so as is in our title, this is definitely not a podcast with any junk, uh, including the junk off your dishes. Um, what about uh, any of the special uh, sessions, like the ones that you can't replay? Did you catch those? Mm. Mm. No, I mean, I did. Uh, I, I watched Mark, Mark Hamill. That was mm. cool. Mark um, Hamill followed up by Run. Um, Luke Skywalker. What? No, uh, afterwards. Hmm. There was a concert after. Did you shut what it off? Yeah. Oh, there was a concert after. How <laughs> just went, was I'm a Star Wars fan. Mark Hamill's done. I'm spent and just laid down. And, and who was it? Run from Run DMC. Huh. I think it was Run. Yeah. I did. Not and he that. had a DJ with him. That's cool. I missed that. It Man. was. It was very cool. You got it. You got it. You're, for enough of a sci-fi fan, you should know to wait through the credits in case there's yeah. any extra scenes. Yeah, it was a cool. So, it was a cool concert. I I had a great time. Uh, did my talks. Did our recordings. I really made sure to attend any of those like non-rebroadcast ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they Makes last. Yeah, I think last year I think they had them playing at the same time and. Uh, so I remember like hacking some incognito browsers to be able to like watch two at a time, oh, which really? didn't really work. Yeah. 
uh, this year, I think they spread them out, which was, which was pleasant. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, so, I already, I think have started watching, watching some re- replays, especially the ones in the dev- developer space. Cause that's my, my yeah. sweet spot. Yeah. Good. good. What were you going to say? I don't were you gonna were you gonna acknowledge that um for all that your camera is dim my is oversaturated so anyone watching the video feed if you combine us we'll have the correct white balance (laughs) but i look like a ghost is that is that people um do a little bit of video editing when they watch us on youtube Um, yeah edit your own video before you watch and then send it back to us that'd be great yeah then yeah that would help us out a lot or, or teach me how to mess with the, uh, the white balance on yeah, you're a do it now, aren't you? yeah Logitech C nine twenty, the C nine twenty, yeah C nine twenty. That's a good one. It's better than the regular nine twenty because you can take it out to see. Okay. Okay. I okay. guess they're well, all they're all cameras. We'll work on the the jokes for next. Week. Yeah, they're all cameras. So in a way, they're all C's. You can see with all of them. So, um, do those jokes turn a D? Yeah, they do. Okay, they do. Okay. It's a shame do we don't have, get along. Do you have anything you were looking forward to this week, next week? It's Thanksgiving week in the U.S. I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but we're kind of heading into the tail end of the year here, and you know, it's um, it's an interesting time of year. the The pace of things changes up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I actually really enjoy uh, working during the weeks where it's like a holiday because I tend to like not have meetings and I, I can actually get work done. And then those weeks end and then I regret not getting as much done as I wanted to. Yep. Yep. How about you? I, uh, same, similar. However, I end up finding that instead of doing the things that I had written down that I wanted to do, I come up with brand new things. Mm. of arguable importance sometimes but um if we ever start a band can it be called arguable importance yeah okay yeah that would be a good that would be a good band um speaking of uh good band names which i'm not um ryan is in the waiting room uh so let's let him in admit uh while he connects to audio and video hal is that um a sandworm from dune behind you or are it you is. just happy to see us? It is. <laughs> uh, yes, that's exactly what that is. And um, ironically, I'm, I'm sort of rocking the, the sandworm in shame because I've actually not seen the movie yet. What? And I missed the chance to see it in IMAX while it was in theaters and in IMAX oh. screens. And it's literally like my favorite book of all time. And I've been waiting for the movie. And then somehow I failed at seeing the movie in its in the form that it was meant to be appreciated. So. Speaking of the form that it's meant to be appreciated, we appreciate you, Mr. Kovar. Welcome. Thank you. I'm uh, excited to be here. First time, uh, first time listener, first time caller. And who are you guys again? Um, I am Hal, and that is Birch. Ah, I thought you were the sandworm. It's hard to tell. Yes. We try. Uh, How's it going, <laughs> Ryan? Yeah, it's going very well. It's uh. It's been a busy couple months, and uh, all we have to do is get to conf next year. So we just have to <laughs> keep going. So. Yeah. How often um, do you say that in your day to day? We just have to get to conf. You know, honestly, our entire you know, I've been at Splunk now seven years, and when I first got here, I remember 
it was my first week was before conf 2014 and my boss was like it's going to be really crazy but once we get to .conf, you'll have a little bit of break and then we just have to get to rsa the next big security conference i was like okay i can do that and it's like we get to rsa he's like i know that was crazy all we got to do is get to gov summit and then we can tell him like oh I can, I can do that and then we get to gov summit i know that was crazy but all we have to do is get to defcon and black hat and i was like well, well, after Black Hat, he's like, then we just have to get to dot comp. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so uh, I will say it does constantly feel like a hurry up and then just keep hurrying. So, so that's, you know, it's good to feel wanted. It is. It is. Uh, I think we've so, all had... um, what we like to kind of get uh, a sense of the people you know on the show and, and kind of understand where you're coming from. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before Splunk? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Which I annoyingly always call the origin story. The origin because story, I like it. It sounds uh, kind of orange. Mine has very little orange, but it does have origination. Um, mm. So yeah, this is my first sales company I've ever worked at. I've never worked in software sales before this. I think like a lot of our, uh, a lot of our tribe, if you will, many of us were practitioners before we came to Splunk. Um, before this, I've always been in security operations or security analytics or security engineering or system administration. Um, before I came to Splunk, I actually was a customer for five years. I worked at DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Actually, that's my, my coffee mug of the day, um, where I helped run a nation state threat hunting team using Splunk. Uh, that was really my second intro into it. Uh, before that, I uh, we, we had a whole bunch of different systems that were all self-created, a lot of jQuery, a lot of MongoDB, a lot of sharding all over the place. Uh, we had about 15 different tools that were running Python scripts and pulling things out of PCAPs and, you know, putting Bro and Zeek into places and looking at wire data and ripping apart files. And what we really needed was a unified entry into seeing all that. And at the time, our reseller uh, was, was ClearShark said, oh, I got this guy I know named Monzi. I've known him since he was a nerd at the labs. Like he's been at Splunk for like a year. You should, you know, Splunk. And I'd actually try to buy Splunk in two. Do you like beards? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you like beards? You look like a beard man. Um, I tried to buy Splunk in 2008 and I had a sales rep come and they wouldn't give me a quote, wouldn't give me a quote. Finally, we got to the very end. He's like, well, I know the number is big, but I want you to think about the value. And he gave me the number and, um, I just laughed because it was actually more than our entire IT software budget for the year. Um, so that was pre-IPO, I will say. Um, and in 2008, change. that yeah, was like pre-clustering, pre- Oh yeah, like it was just- A lot of was, the value, yeah. It was just a way to look at Windows event logs easily, which yeah. is what I wanted, but it wasn't there. And uh, so I was like, ah, Splunk's too expensive. He's like, I think you'll love it. So we talked to Monty for a bit. We were in the middle of an incident um, we had been running grep, awk, and sed for like a week trying to find things. And I mean, you guys are neckbeards, fellow neckbeards. So, you know, you, you, you run a query with those things, even on massive systems, we were looking at 10 to 15, 20 terabytes of data. It was like, enter it in, walk away for a while, come back. Yeah. Hope anyway, it didn't crash. Yeah. Hope you didn't so lose your network we, connection. We ran an experiment where we, we started off our next uh, awk query. And then we loaded up Splunk, loaded up the data, and then within 10 minutes of loading Splunk in, we actually found the, the adversary um, before the awk query that we had been running finished. Oh, and, you raced them against wow. each other? Yeah, we were racing them. And uh, that was like, oh, this is easy. And then we you know, conflated all of our tools. And like we actually paid for Splunk for five years just based off the tool reduction, um, oh, wow. which you know, the, the nerd part is fine. But at the end of the day, there's 
you know, I had to show we were being wise custodians of our budget and that was an easy mm -hmm. one. So that's how I got into Splunk. And you know, before that, I did a lot of other things. I worked in the UK home office and some intelligence roles uh, doing system administration, security engineering. I worked for a large marketing company that did, um, they were like the Cambridge Analytica before it was truly evil. Uh, but what they would do is they would buy, sorry, they leased, that was the key word. We leased data. Uh, we never bought mm. data. So if you ever see anyone say like, we don't sell your data, ask if they lease your data. Oh. Because every year we had to renew our lease for someone's data. And the way, one of the reasons I got into security is we would lease their data, which meant we had to show that we were custodians of their data, which meant I had 74 plus audits a year from the different people that we lease data to come on site and review our custodianship, if you will. Um, 74? 74. That's so crazy. It was a huge part of my job and a huge part of it was just coming up with understanding how people thought about auditing, coming up with automated processes to show and display the data in a way that was the most vanilla way possible. Because if you've ever been through an audit, mm -hmm. every auditor's Every bit bias, of detail opens up like 10 more questions. It does, but it's only on their biases, right? So like I once had a guy, so we had Big Iron, we had old mainframe computers in there that were doing like SaaS jobs. And never had, you know, if you ask me to review a mainframe for security. By the way, when I retire, I want on my cake, my nickname to be Big Iron. Big, big Iron, Big, yeah. Big Iron, Big yeah. Iron Birch. He was a good man. Yeah. Ran yeah. the data through double processing. Yeah. So <laughs> like I had this guy come through and I'm like, oh, secure your Big big Iron. So I went online, I went to IBM, I found stuff about ZOS, went through, checked all the boxes. Like, all right, I think I'm good here. Like for three years, every auditor just like, oh, wow, how incredible. Like you really did due diligence here. I was like, yeah, I'm pretty badass. And then I get a guy who had done uh, mainframe administration for like 15 years before he became an auditor. And he yeah. was just like, basically, you don't care about data security and you want all of your data to leave. I was like, what are you talking about? So he went through the entire, like he didn't look at all of our Windows logs. He didn't look at anything. It's just he concentrated completely on the mainframe. Um, and that was pretty, pretty indicative of every other auditor. It was all about their own inherent knowledge and that's what they would dial in on. So what you really, to your point, Bert, like a lot of it's just like you have the open book and it's kind of like, choose your adventure. Where am I going to get screwed today? And the auditor will tell you where it hurts. Just he points there and you kind of open up and you dig in. So a lot of that. So I feel like you probably learned a lot though, through that exercise. Oh, it was incredible. Um, I learned a lot about dealing with people. I learned a lot about just opening your own aperture of understanding. Actually, I didn't realize at the time, but it really helped me to work at a company like Splunk, where we talk to customers who all have various different needs and requirements and understanding all of those different aspects. I learned that for sure, uh, working in compliance, uh, being on the recipient of it, because you're just dealing with different personalities and different needs and understanding the emotions behind it and the background. And you know, to your point, Birch, uh, you don't really understand a person until you understand their origin story. And so for a lot of times, my first questions were like, tell me about yourself. And then I can prepare, like, how are we going to go down this route? You know, you bring up a really interesting thing, Ryan. The, <clears throat> you're at a point now, and I'm going to say this, you, you haven't said this, but you, you're a distinguished strategist, if, if we're not mistaken, um, which is almost like, yo, this dude is so smart and so self-driven that we, we don't need him, like, funneled away in one little thing like we need you to have like complete autonomy to get involved with what you think is appropriate to get involved with but part of that means that you have a very different 
nature around accountability. You're not responding to the audience. You're not responding to security incidents unless you get like pulled in, but yeah. it's not like it's your day to day. So you're, you're, it's, uh, I'll, I'll be, um, it's probably a little extreme to say, but it, it's almost like you're retired and you're like doing consulting. Like I've earned my, like, I'm so smart at what I do that I can consult in all these different things. But because of that, you don't have that like challenge of accountability that forces you to continue to learn at the pace you used to. And I've noticed that like in my background, when I used to be an administrator, a customer of Splunk, I was learning things so rapidly, answering very weird questions I never to. came across because I had to. Um, so and it's very interesting first. to try to I would, I would flip replicate this around that on now. You. Yeah. And like, I, I'm sure both of you have this. I go to customers who are like, oh, you, you're incredible at Splunk. I was like, no, no, you're way better at Splunk than I am. Like you do this every single day. I like, I have okay. high level architecture knowledge. I have inspiration, but what I have found as my career has progressed is I got bored solving the problems that everyone else was solving. And I enjoyed solving problems that I saw and could create myself. So for me, yeah, the, the accountability and the drive to learn now has just shifted to, I was a really, really good individual contributor. I was one of the best in the company. So I got promoted many times. Yes. But what I found I had more joy in was how do I group together people for my wacky, crazy ideas and then execute that with no budget, no support, no marketing, nothing, and create something bigger than myself, um, which has been what I've really found that I enjoyed. And when I did get promoted distinguished at the time, um, you know, I had a conversation with Susan St. Ledger and another one with Doug Merritt. Um, May they both <laughs> uh, have but great you know, futures. Doug kind of said, I said, Doug, what's my job? And he says, well, your job is to be Ryan Kovar. I was like, right, but what are my success criteria? He's like, well, you'll know it when you're not doing it. And that kind of resonated. Susan's was much more concise. She's like, well, we're giving you a lot of rope to hang yourself or to build a rope bridge to your next career objective. I said, well, yeah. that's a little bit easier to understand and like, just be really awesome. Um, but so that for me, it's like flipping that around is the reason yeah. I love doing this is because they let me do weird, wonderful things. But the background is always, I can do it until I fail. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, so and I think, I, I feel like, well, just the, to cap, um, just to cap that off, like, I, I think that was, that was where I was going was that like, what, how do you stay challenged as you continue to like move into these like totally different nature? And I think that's really good advice that I want to make sure everyone is able to walk away with is that like, we, we have a lot of people that we know that were individual contributors and then become people managers and they move further away from, uh, further away from like the technical work. And, and you can see they're like a little sad that they're like, yeah, the oh, heart dies every day. And so I think it's really great. Like that is not like you have not gone into people management. Um, you're still demonstrating how you can move a little further away. Like you said, you're better at splunking. You do it every day. I'm noticing the larger landscape patterns and these gnarly things to solve. And I think that should be an inspiration for, for anyone that like, you know, keep your eyes open and, and you are your own boss. You are also holding yourself accountable. The number one thing I tell people is own your own career because no one else will. So yeah. if you're not reviewing what you're doing and how you're going through for all the advice I ever give people for mentoring, it's uh, no one will ever care as much about you and your financial health and your family's financial well-being as you will. So if you're not paying attention to it, don't expect your boss or manager to. Yeah. How I that cut you off. Great there. advice. Um, no, I was just going to say um, agent for change. That's kind of what I heard. That's a hundred percent. Especially, you know, and I think both of you gentlemen embody this as well. Um, 
for those of us who've been around at Splunk long enough and you have a little bit of autonomy, like I do believe what your job is, is to go out and find problems to solve. If someone else is giving you a problem, frankly, I don't think, if you have a senior title and all you're doing is waiting for people to give you a problem to solve, you're probably not um, sitting in the right seat, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, nothing in my career, I've never been, I've never gotten reward or financial or career success by doing what my bosses have told me to do only. Um, which yeah. is not to say you should be working 20 hours a day, but it's more looking for the problems that no one else has thought of and trying to solve those within the realm of your responsibility and authorities. And Let me if ask you a can define the, the value of, of spending time on that to your leadership mm -hmm. and they let you do it, that's nice. I mean, that's kind of the, the part of like, uh, you, you know, when you're doing what you love, you never work a you know, day in your life. It's that, it's that kind of thing. That's the hardest thing to find is I, I've been very lucky. I've consistently seeked out roles that allow me to kind of work on special teams uh, mm -hmm. that are designed to partly have that creativity allowance, if you will. And then even as I foster my own team, so I actually am a people manager now, uh, even though I'm still a technically an individual contributor, I run, I have six people who are executing on my visions, which is a very pretentiously bullshitty thing to say, but that is literally when I got the team, it was like, we want to have more Kovar. It's like, well, then, you know, short of cloning, like we're going to have to just hire people <laughs> to execute on my, my ideas. Um, and a lot of that really comes around giving people the intellectual freedom to think bigger than just one thing. So I, I want to get into those ideas, those initiatives that you're working on this year. But before we do that, I want to go back uh, a second. Can you tell us a little bit about um, working at DARPA and, and that kind of experience? Because that's a different type of institution than I think most people have experience. With. That breath that he just took made me realize he gets this question a lot. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the best places I've ever worked, actually, before Splunk, it was the best job I ever had. Uh, I was working with, um, at the time, I was living in the United Kingdom. I just finished, I was finishing my master's degree, which kind of a weird story all in itself, because I don't have an undergraduate degree, but I was finishing a master's degree while I was living in the UK. And uh, my best friend and mentor from the Navy, the guy who taught me everything I knew, uh, called up and said, hey, listen, uh, because of some things, uh, I'm standing up a nation state threat hunting team at DARPA, and I'd love for you to come help me run it. I said, well, this is an incredible opportunity. My wife was finishing her PhD in London. And I said, well, this is too big of an opportunity to miss. Um, we don't have children. So we said, okay, let's go back to doing a long distance. And for those of you who've ever been into an academic relationship, uh, academia, you tend to have a lot of long distance relationships. So she stayed in London to finish off her PhD. I moved uh, to DC and started working at DARPA. And you know, the whole program was basically you know, I just finished a master's degree in cybersecurity and it felt like I walked right into a PhD in nation state hunting, which is a very different section of cybersecurity. And this was about 2009, which for those historians in the room is right about when we really started. I'm not going to say there was a nation state hunting and nation state adversary actions before that, but this is about when my father-in-law would ask things like, are the Chinese in my TV? Um, you know, you see articles in the Wall Street Journal and it kind of kicked off. Mm -hmm. And DARPA, for those of you who don't know it, uh, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, uh, they're the blue sky research for the U.S. Department of Defense. So What's they've invented, yeah, blue sky, meaning all their research is designed to be 40 to 60 years out. Um, oh. And they have a 99.7%, I believe, uh, failure rate. So most of the things that DARPA works on never comes to light. But when they hit a home run, it's the stealth bomber, it's the M16, it's this little thing called the internet. Um, oh those all came out of DARPA to offices, but most projects in DARPA fail. And that, that aspect of failure is expected and okay resonates through the whole, um, oh, wow. whole organization. 
And it's actually now literally our team, my team here at Splunk, Surge's motto is fail less. Every day you fail, but tomorrow fail a little bit less. And there's no failure that is actual failure unless you do it twice. And so as mm -hmm. long as you publish about it, as long as you talk about it, as long as you explain your methodology, as long as no one ever fails like you did again, I, I believe there's nothing, failure isn't really a bad thing. It's only a failure if you do it two times the exact same way. Yeah, because um, it's like you didn't learn from that first exactly. time. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, as, uh, you know, Hallis said, right, innovation requires failure. You can't, you know, Edison, you know, apocryphal stories, right? Horrible human being in the long run, but, you know, 99, 900, 9,000 times of just trying an iteration step by step by step. And I think a lot of people are discouraged by failure, but uh, it's really what makes things better. Um, you know, you can't build a muscle without micro tears. You can't, um, can't think more unless you keep reading and not understanding and finding more source material. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the one story I'll talk about for DARPA um, is that I remember it was my third week there and I was in the, going out to get a sandwich or something in the parking lot. And there were four guys in a lawn chair wearing um, lab coats with satellite antennas and they were pointed up at the building. And, you know, this is a, a, a research and development agency for the US government. And here we have people in a van. And so we kind of go up and like, hey, are you supposed to be here? They're like, oh, absolutely. They show us our cards, we go through. And I was like, oh, that was weird. And my buddy Marcus, who actually now works at Splunk and he works for me, um, he kind of said like, oh no, that's just normal stuff. I was like, okay, whatever. And then we're in the hallway after lunch and it was kind of like, um, what was that movie with Val Kilmer that was like at pseudo Caltech? No. The one that was in the, exactly. That is basically where we worked. Like, and so we're in the office and we're walking down the hallway and this like drone flew by the office door and he's just like, welcome to DARPA. You know, and a couple of months later, a year or two later, we have the Atlas robot like walking around. They're like, oh, come kick the robot to see if it falls down. Let's test it out. You know, like, and then going to the auditorium and watching, um, you know, watching hypersonic missiles explode because we were testing them out and, you know, talking to a guy who was working on in the middle of this was during the Obama administration, and he changed the mandate of DARPA to be focused on basically five-year problems instead of 50-year problems to help the uh, boys and girls out in Afghanistan. So things like the, you know, one of the things that came back was we had uh, guys in Afghanistan who had hooked up microwaves on 30-foot booms, and they were running it off the 12-volt uh, generator in the Humvees. And the reason being it created a magnetic, um, a magnetic uh, sphere. And when the microwave was running, it would cause also light radiation and that the adversaries in Afghanistan for the IEDs were actually past magnetic. They were looking at all these different things. And so the guys had figured out if they just dropped a microwave 20 feet in front of their Humvee, it would trigger the IED. And basically oh, wow. this story came back and said, why do we have grunts in the field doing this when we have all these eggheads in DC who could be focusing on something like this? So then we started seeing projects like, oh, could we create a drone the size of a human hand that someone could just throw up and it would go find people? Or can we have sniper bullets that can go you know, 20 degrees to the left midair based on trajectories coming through? So those are the sort of projects that we worked on. And our job for all of this was to defend the data that people were doing. So hopefully that- Wow, very fun cool. Background. Yeah, appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit more about Splunk and kind of the, you know, the things that are motivating you this Do we have to? You mentioned Surge, so. <laughs> Tell us what that's about. Yeah, so Surge is kind of the culmination, frankly, hopefully not the final step, but it's certainly the final step today of my time at Splunk. Uh, so seven years I've been at Splunk and I've been an individual contributor. I've been promoted multiple times and it's always kind of been doing Ryan Kovar sort of things, uh, which has been weird, wonderful, uh, you know, 
I dreamt up the idea of Boston Sock. I created it with my good friend, uh, Dave Harold and other people like James Brodsky. Um, you know, it's a lot of visiting customers and really talking about weird use cases that you can use Splunk. I'm a, a absolutely non-apologetic, I'm a security person who uses Splunk and not a Splunk person who does security, which is a little bit different of a kind of person here at Splunk, I think. And I've really taken that and I work at, you know, writing up conference abstracts and speaking at Black Hat and DEF CON and RSA and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, part of this was like the evangelization of what we can do with Splunk. But what I find is most customers really are stuck in their head of what Splunk is, which is like, oh, you look at Windows event logs. That's what you do with Splunk. I was like, well, no, what we do with Splunk is you can analyze any key value data, right? As long as it has a key and a value, you can do incredibly wonderful things. Um, I've done really fun natural language parsing uh, with Splunk. I've done, you know, one of the defenses that Marcus and I have worked on before is around using Splunk to ingest billions of emails and do analytics for basically peer, peer grouping to try to find adversaries in email body data or ripping out attachments and running malware analysis via Python scripts and having all that data come back, back into Splunk in a JSON blob connected with a UUID of what the original email was. So now you can start tracking people's attachments and variations over time with peer group analysis of the from and the to and looking at just all sorts of incredible data. Cause at the end of the day, an email, it's just a key value document, right? It's from colon this person to colon this person, BCC colon this, you know, X forwards colon this, body this, subject this, attachment this, all the way through. I I used to say, like, if you can read it, then you can Splunk it. That was what I would say to my customers. And 100%. it's a similar kind of thing. But I, I think, I think you know, you're, you're getting into the key value part, but there's a part, the first thing you said really hooked me, which is that, like, people want to talk about what is Splunk and then think about, like, their use cases. And it, it's almost like, well, it's so darn flexible. As If you can read it, you can, you can do something with it. Think about, like, what is it that you're trying to solve? And then like, we could talk about how Splunk can help you. And that kind of creates that aha moment of like, oh, I get it. I could do yeah. anything. So um, that's- Is that in line with what- Yeah, hundred percent. And that's kind of where we're going with uh, search. So we have a wonderful threat research team here at Splunk uh, led by Jose Hernandez and multiple other. And they really focus on looking at today's cybersecurity threats and malware and creating detections in things like enterprise security content update or um, you know, business analytics or whatever it's called this week, um, you know, different tools that we have at Splunk. And that's really their focus. They're part of the product. And they also write up great blogs explaining their methodology. But I kind of looked at it and said, you know what I do? I love Splunk to look at security problems. So our, what we do at Surge is we use Splunk to solve cybersecurity issues as an analytical tool rather than just a detection mechanism. So that's kind of where we're heading down. That's a lot more of the research we're working on. And that's what we are. It's a security, cybersecurity research team that uses Splunk. So um, it's a team. Does it stand yep. for something? It does, uh, but I'm not actually allowed to talk about it. According to legal, that's not actually a joke, uh, but I will reveal my secrets for a uh, dirty martini at a bar anywhere around the world. Um, but the, the name- the second time I'm going to use this word today, but you need to come up with a backronym. A backronym. Oh, I don't. What's a backronym? People like me use that either. A backronym is is taking a word and then retroactively creating an acronym. Oh, like word. they do with legislation all the time. Yes, exactly. They're like, oh, it's the <laughs> truck act, yeah. and yeah. it's like, wait a second. Toys really understand cars. Cancer, cancer children. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> worst text. So you have to come up with a second <laughs> meaning. That you there we go. The, yeah. the, the, the double double secret probation uh, hidden one. Um, the the reason search got approved, uh, secret name responding is a lot of our first work was really around. Uh, I identified that Splunk needed to be more proactive in reaching out to customers and providing guidance during cybersecurity incidents. Why? And because we're not happening already. I mean, you think of any big name, you know. Um, I'm not going to name them for you know, the, those customers of ours that that we all we all know about, and they're on the big news. But you know, those breaches happen. There's an immediate demand for a response. And we've never had an organized response to that Splunk. It's been like ad hoc. James Brodsky or I primarily, but like, oh yeah, we should write a blog on that. And I said, well, it was kind of forged in the uh, the embers of Solar Winds, um, where we had a really great response. And then we kind of that just was. said, great, that's someone else's job now. And then like a month later, I realized like, actually, no, it is no one else's job. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation about finding those hidden corners, like that was a hidden corner. I realized like, we are thankfully a data to everything company, but the majority of our customers use Splunk for a security purpose. But and are you saying like you want us, you, the point is like, it, it used to be like, oh, I don't know. I'm like thinking of like seven years ago, like a security thing happened and we would be like, well, we're not a security company. And then it was like a few years later, like, oh yeah, you can use Splunk to solve that. Then there was a blog that would be like, yep. here's how you can use Splunk to, and now you're pivoting all the way to, we're not going to re respond to, like, we're going, be, we're going to be proactive. We're not just responding to it. We want to actually be the ones to announce these security so, well, issues. Not quite announced. We're not there yet. Okay. But what I can say is what we do now is we have an internal rubric. We can't respond to everything. Splunk isn't always the right hammer for every screw, right? Um, and we only have finite resources. So what you we do it. is I have a rubric we've created um, that we go through for every, we, right now we're appended to DHS's CISA, which is Cyber Information Security Agency. Uh, they're kind of the leading edge of the US CERT for all things cybersecurity for America. And we kind of look at them as a good Bible of saying like, okay, let's look at what they publish. And if they announce an alert or an emergency directive at a bare minimum, we review every single one of those. And we determine if Splunk should make a very, very quick, rapid response. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've seen this over the last year with our ability to respond to Hafnium, our ability to respond to SolarWinds, our ability, you know, Printer Nightmare, all these different things. Uh, myself or the team from the Splunk Threat Research team have actually looked at this and said, yes, we're gonna re review and release content as soon as possible. And our current matrix is my team is going to do spaghetti on the wall code. Right, so we try. If we decide that we're going to do a rapid response, you know, our internal soft SLA and legals close your ears. Right, I try to get something out within 24 to 36 hours to the East Coast of America time. And what we try to put out there is not perfect. It doesn't scale. I still don't believe that um, God wanted us to have clustered systems. I think that a that a Splunk server is uh, between a an indexer and a search head, and that's it. Um, you know, that's the only thing I really know and understand. I'm not a great Splunk plumber, but like we create things that will find stuff as quickly as possible and gets that customer the first 20 yards down the, the, the football field, right? And we're very clear about this. We set expectations of like, listen, this is not perfect. This is the best we have right now, but we've had six or seven of the brightest security minds I can find in the world who know Splunk to work on this to get you something right now. And then we're backfilling with the threat research team of actually creating scalable, low false positive, low false negative detections that will work with all of our products. But so what we're like, trying to do we're is gonna get, get you 80% of the way there, but within like the first 24 to 48 hours. Exactly. And then 80% would be great. Thing, I'd yeah. be fine with 20%. And when yeah. we talk to customers about this, they're just often like anything in a direction is better than nothing. 
kind of like they want to know are we impacted or not that's another part of the question number one that's you know that's been a funny you know you guys are both uh old school splunkers so when we first started there was no cloud product it was all on-prem and now we've had this change of you know i've actually released security uh blogs where our internal team has come back and said oh that was great thank you and i was like wait we don't have that product in-house they're like well we didn't but we had to verify I was like, oh, so now our internal security team is actually wrapped into this whole rapid response as well. They're customers of your content as well. They're customers of our content. And we're also looking at them and saying like, well, we now run, you know, cloud business is the majority of our our customer base. And we have to make sure that we're in lockstep with that team. And so one of the things we do aspect of this is if we are impacted, they are consulted and they actually will review and release a statement. You saw this for SolarWinds uh, where the CISO came out and said, hey, very quickly, we're not impacted. This is mm-hmm. you know, what it is. Um, so yeah, it is also oh, part of that. Okay. I see what you're yeah, that's right. Um, Everybody was know, forced to respond because of the how they may be connected to the yep. world in various ways. Yeah. So Surge, you know, that's one aspect of our responsibilities. And then the second part is actually looking longer term, more strategic. I'll call that the tactical work. The strategic work is you know, Marcus Lafrere and I spoke at dotconf this year and we did a paper on supply chain detections. So although it was detection focus, a large amount of the work that we spoke about and we wrote a white paper on it and also the comp talk was a lot more around getting people's head around the idea of supply chain compromise and what software supply chain is or isn't. Uh, because for many people, it was a new, a new concept. I talked to 193 customers after SolarWinds because I pretty much led the Splunk response to SolarWinds from a security point of view. And I thought it was going to be really fun nation state, nation state espionage discussions or like really in-depth discussions about hunting and pivoting and looking at fun data. 90% of the conversation started with, so how would I find out if I had a SolarWinds appliance in my network? And mm-hmm. what is a software supply chain? Like those I, were actually I think I questions. actually want you to define it here. So I can do that. Um, a software supply chain compromise, in my opinion, and this is also a little bit of a hot topic, and we have a blog coming about it next week, uh, is really around an adversary has intentionally included code into a software distribution at some point. Now, the reason I'm being vague is what I've done, the the new blog I'm writing right now and going to be publishing soon, has identified that there's three different places that you can group software supply chain compromises into. Mm -hmm. The one of us that, sorry, go ahead. I think think part that that Hal and and I want to make sure it's clear to our listeners is software supply chain as a concept, I, I think is a relatively new thing. This idea of like distributing the bits through a distributed method. Um, so here I would, I would disagree. If you can explain um, if you can explain what that is. Yeah. What sure. does it look like now and, and what you were about to say? Yeah. So this is what's interesting to me is we all have pretty much gray in our beard. You've shaved yours off Birch, So maybe you don't count, but you like, can't tell because my video is so washed out. Yeah, that, that's the it. Funny it's, thing it's, it's a good white balance. It's a good job. Video filters yeah. before, and he had. Uh, he just smoothed yeah. it all out. You're a beautiful 21-year-old man. Um, the, the We all grew up in a time where I first, like when I first started my IT job, I would get software updates via disks, right? Yeah. TechNet. And then it was like the glorious new world of I could get AV updates uh, over the internet. Mm-hmm. And I was very concerned because what if they got hacked? Well, mm-hmm. then they started publishing an MD5 or some sort of cryptographic hash yeah. of what their update was. And you could go manually verify um, and kind of look at it and make sure what you got was. So the idea of getting updates via a third party over the internet has been around for a very long time. Um, and that's what we're most of us, when we think of software supply chain, you think of what happened to SolarWinds, which is that company got hacked. 
their update methodology got hacked and that you downloaded malicious updates. And that's almost impossible for you to, and I've talked to friends at Microsoft, I've talked to friends at Kaspersky, at ESET, all over the world, and everyone agrees there's no way for a customer to actually determine that they were receiving a malicious package from SolarWinds. And that's not throwing any shade on SolarWinds. This is a very hard problem to solve. I'm not victim blaming it here. Hmm. But that is the traditional method of software supply chain compromise or attack that I think most of us are comfortable with. It happens Your further vendor, upstream than... Yeah, it's further upstream than you can That's a very succinct way. I can imagine it's like you don't know if the MD5 that you're getting or whatever key you're getting is also compromised. So, well, like, yeah, in this case, like, or not. you could have had the MD5, MD5 hash and it would have been exactly correct because to House Point, it was much, much further upstream that the malicious code was injected. So, by right. the time, and I'm so far upstream, I'm off screen. That's how off stream I am. By the time <laughs> I got in screen and in stream for all their methodologies for verifying, it's assumed okay. And thus yeah. all the cryptographic, you know, hashing is done at a point where it already has the malicious code inside of it. Um, and that's where, at least for me, and I'll, I'll show my own age bias here, I was very comfortable with that idea. Like, oh, this all makes sense. Like I had to think outside the box a little bit. And that's why it was a novel attack method by the mm -hmm. adversary, but it makes sense. Where it starts getting weird is things like Code Cove. And I think you guys are much more savvy on DevOps than I am, but this idea now that any Fortune 100 company and I would argue almost any Fortune 1000 company probably has an active DevOps team developing code in their organization somewhere, right? And this is a methodology- I would go a lot broader than that. Oh, Most we can go as broad as you want. I can almost guarantee a Fortune 1000. I think you yeah. can pretty much go to any modern company at some point has this happening. Well, but I'm saying just especially. any modern company has a DevOps team. That's the yeah. statement. There we go. Sure. Yeah. Whether there's a yeah. team called that or not, is, is not the point. I'm, Someone's I'm, doing yeah, it. Somebody's doing DevOps. The methodology being used often is, is going to be that that style and very dynamic. But, so what, where, where are you going with this? So that's a second type of software supply chain compromise. This is the part that I get a little bit, like I do a lot of learning on. And the idea here is that there was compromise recently called Code Cove, and there's been a whole bunch of other ones. We The DevOps world uses a lot of third-party tooling mm -hmm. in their pipeline, CICD okay. pipeline, right? Yep. And they're third parties. Well, what happens when that third party gets compromised and is injecting or reviewing code in your CI CD pipeline? That is also- And you've assumed that it's secure and that you're just working in your pipeline and no one's peeking in. Exactly. So um, that is another aspect of supply chain compromise. And this can be defined with the idea of a supplier and a consumer um, for, uh, for software supply chain compromise. And when you start viewing it from a lens of, am I supplier? or am I consumer, then you start determining what sort of defenses mechanisms you have to take because they're different if you're a supplier, in which case, you know, Splunk, for example, is a supplier in multiple ways. We supply software on-prem. We also supply software in a DevOps methodology. And then a consumer, like we are also a consumer of other organizations' DevOps uh, processes. We're also a consumer of other people's uh, software. Um, and then the third supply chain is cloud. Um, Kasaya, the most recent uh, breach that a lot of people heard of, you know, that wasn't a software supply chain compromise in the way that many people think of the first two that I talked about. But for a customer of Kasaya, if you're not familiar with Kasaya, it's a third party tool that does remote management and they actually had a vulnerability in their software. So Kasaya itself was never attacked, but people who had purchased their software and were running the software in the cloud, mm -hmm. actually that cloud instance had a vulnerability that an adversary was able to utilize 
and then took their cloud technology and then pivoted on-prem and put down malicious code onto the customers of the customers of Kasaya. So wow. now we're back to biblical. It's like he begat and begat and begat. Um, so that is also a supply chain compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very difficult one. So this is why we've been fascinated by software mm-hmm. supply chain compromise because I only understood one part of that when I started my research. And when I talk to people, you kind of keep opening up that aperture and it gets wider and wider. And I don't think everyone needs to be an expert on it, but I think everyone needs to be at least aware of the taxonomy and the differences. And are you even looking for any of this? So that's an example of places that Surge is doing research on. That is not just finding detections. That's also about just using Splunk and using security and just writing up things to help the world and educate the best that we can. So um, just taking a, a complete- Yeah, but what is Surge? <laughs> Told you. What has love got to do with it? Um, taking a, a flip back, uh, I think I think people would want this question and, and I don't want to forget to ask it. Um, this is going back in your career here at Splunk. We've had people come on and talk about boss of the, the knock, boss of the sock, boo, um, other bosses. Give us a peek into the the origin story of that because it's been such an incredibly successful event. Like, uh, so I'm, I'm less focused on like what it is because we've had people come on and, and talk about that. And there's so many great resources where people can learn more about that. But, you know, the unique like Rankovar story of like, tell us about that that martini no, like you were why? drinking when you, you when you guys yeah, came up so with this. The, the honest to God story is my first week at Splunk, going back to this, I attended .conf 2014. I'd gone to .conf 2013 as a customer. I started Splunk a week before .conf. Uh, my boss at the time, Fred Wilmot, said, why don't you come out? We'll smuggle you in. We don't have a ticket, but we'll figure out a way. I said, fine. So I came out and they literally, like Fred just said, you look kind of like me, have my badge, go inside <laughs> and then give it to someone else and have him come in. I was like, I don't think we look, I guess we kind of, oh, this is awkward. But anyway, that it's happened. very security when, yeah, like, very it's security. very funny security. Like we're going to circumvent security. <laughs> Who yeah. needs security? That's for other people, not the watchers. Yeah. Um, so they were running an event there called Red vs. Blue. And the idea was that... Oh, really? Yeah. And the idea was that we were going to have a live team of red teamers and a live team of Splunk customers. And the red teamers would be attacking something and the blue team would be detecting and mitigating. And I was a little suspicious of this just because of the timing. Like most blue team defenders, most network defenders, you don't work real time. You work off of logs that come in you run analytics, you look for things, you kind of, it's, it's much more forensic than like mm-hmm. active defense. It's not, it's much more cops and robbers than, you know, US Marines versus someone else in active combat. Like that's not usually how this works. But long story of it is it did not go well. Uh, there were a whole bunch of uh, technical issues that popped up. And then when we actually did run it, the red team just absolutely destroyed the blue team. And most of our customers are Splunkers who attend .conf, not necessarily died in the wool blue teamers and it was just wrong expectations and it didn't go well then two years was later the red team splunk employees oh they were yeah they were old oh. splunk employees who were red teamers um basically fired. against like customers who are potentially new to using splunk they yeah, were shooting absolutely. fish in a barrel that is good one. <laughs> and that doesn't mean they wouldn't have found them but like you don't work in 15 or 20 minute increments mm-hmm. as a blue team i'm just i'm just picturing like the the like high school kid down the street is like, oh yeah, you guys want to play basketball against me? To the kindergartners. 
that is like it, it is like those videos you see of the 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 14 year old guy in the world series for little league who's like got yeah. a beard and three children and his ex-wife is cheering in the yeah. in the stands right i swear he's um, 14 yeah yeah 14 in dominican um so they they went through and didn't go well and then two years later my boss like hey you're gonna have to do a whole bunch of booth duty at .conf. i was like i really hate booth duty like, are there any other options? He's like, but Ryan, you're such a booth babe. <laughs> yeah. I, he just said like, Hey, you're an inventive guy. Figure something out. I was like, all right, you know, let's do a CTF. He's like, well, I didn't go well at red versus blue. Now CTF is a capture the flag activity. It's very common for cybersecurity conferences, but they're almost always red team focused. A, a, a team sets up a, uh, a whole bunch of servers and on those servers are flags and the red team has to hack all the way through and then you capture the flag and you get points by the difficulty of the flag. And that's very, very common at red team conferences. And I- You've I am done under- a lot of these, like you, you done, had experience. I've done many of them, but I don't actually like them. I am a, I'm, I'm a little bit weird in that I am a cybersecurity professional. I love defending. I love being a blue team. Uh, I love just being a blue teamer and defending networks. And I don't find hacking- it is difficult, but it's not something that I enjoy doing by comparison. So I said, well, what if we flip that around and had a blue team CTF? And there's an organization, a training organization called SANS who does something similar. Um, and I said, yeah, but we need to make it 100% using Splunk. And that would be cool. My boss was like, well, figure it out and go off and do that. So I kind of dreamt up some ideas. I pitched it to Dave Harold, And um, also then after that, Steve Brandt, who worked at Splunk at the time. And they said, yeah, we're, we're into this. Let's try it out. And we started off with a couple commandments, as we called them, which was the first is thou shalt keep it real. So the number one thing was you could not have a marketing bullshitty jump of logic to make the project mm-hmm. product look good. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I believe that Splunk Core is the single best cybersecurity product that exists in the entire market. I still believe that to this day. And we shouldn't have to do anything to make that. And point. just because it doesn't do some things perfectly doesn't mean it isn't incredible, right? And so like, just accept that. And this is what our customers deal with every day. We have people wear fezes and capes to our conferences because of how incredible core is. And I'm like, just do that and be honest about it. And the other part is security isn't all Splunk. So a third of the competition had to be not just looking in Splunk. It had to be going into Splunk and then pivoting out into the internet to do research Mm -hmm. or doing some sort of cryptographic thing or you know, it had to be something else. But I said, you know, an analyst job is not just sitting in front of Splunk Core. It is using Splunk Core to find answers, which often are generated. So sometimes you go off and you come back and you go off and you come back. So that was what we did. And that was the first boss of the SOC. Was, was part of that, that first part of um, like the marketing, like not having the marketing thing is like from a user's perspective, it breaks reality because it's like, oh, well, everything here is very real. Like I can go on the internet and look up like, where is this IP coming from? Or, yep. or who is regi- who's the who is for this or whatever. Um, and you can find all those things. But as soon as you introduce like a marketing thing, I, I don't mean to like bash on marketing, but like a thing where the reality is not true and we're just expecting them to like suspend Uncanny reality. It's yeah, the- then, then it's like, well, if that, then what else? Like if yep. that is true, it then- It calls into question the entire integrity of what we were trying the- to do. Yeah, and, like I have no issues with marketing events. And I feel like if people have that defined, if your expectation is I'm walking into a marketing event, you're fine. If you right. walk in and say, hey, this is not a marketing event. Oh, by the way, look at in the incredible features set that you'll see here. And oh, it doesn't work super great, but isn't that better than like, no, people, I would rip that up. And so we, cut, we just had a really low bullshit meter. It had to be real. It had to be something that we did. And I mean, perfectly honest, if it was something that Splunk really wasn't good at, we might not have included it, but that also just wasn't helpful for people to spend their time. And you're asking right. a real commitment of people, like four hours to do this 
this game. And like we've done calculations on it, and it's something like 790,000 hours that people have played for bots by this point. Wow. After seven years, 45,000 people played, um, or six years, 45,000 plus people. And you look at that, you're like, you know, I'm reminded of Steve Jobs talking about like this boot up time for Mac. And like it was taking 45 seconds or something similar to that. And he's like, I want to get that down to five. And the guy was like, why? 45 seconds? He's like, you start your computer, you go get a cup of coffee and you come back. He's like, it's not a problem. He's like, we sold 6.9 million computers last year. Everyone turns on their computer once a day, 6.9 times 365 times 45 seconds. You've just wasted like 45 people's lifetimes per year. (laughs) And I kind of look at that as a similar thing. Like I, I really value everyone's time and trying to make things to be the most valuable and the most impactful and the most efficient I can, I think is important. And that's something that we try to do in Boss of the Sock. Anything from Boss of the Sock V1 that just completely surprised you? Like, oh, I really thought this thing would like take off and we oh, had to drop it immediately or I, I, I really wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Um, I had a lot more because we were trying to do proper tradecraft and we tried to do that for every Boss of the Sock. So what, what does that, that mean? I, so tradecraft in this is more from the from the the red team side or the the adversary side of if you go through boss of the sock 1.0 if you look at their domains their register we actually start with a story first so we yeah. we storyboard the entire thing we come up with the personas who the attackers are what their motivations are who you're attacking what the company is and we whiteboard everything before you even start the technology part and then to do that you have to set up infrastructure as an adversary So when you set up infrastructure, that's buying domains, that's registering domains, that's getting IP addresses, that's buying digital ocean droplet servers. And we actually map that all out before we even start. Well, then you start trying to buy this. And if you're an adversary trying to buy servers, like how do I buy a server and not have my name attached to it? How do I make sure that my, I don't screw up, you know, this is pre GDPR. So how do I make sure when I register a domain that I don't have Ryan Kovar in the domain, I have you know, my persona's name. Well, then I'd register some of them. And for .com, it was fine. But for some of the more interesting domains, they require like a passport for mm-hmm. you to actually show verification. Like you said, you registered this domain. We're putting your information in. You know, we need to see that you are in fact Alice Bluebird or, you know, I wasn't using Alice, but whatever persona I created. Because my goal was in the competition, you would actually have to look up a DNS domain. You'd have to find who registered it. From that, you could pivot and find oh, other domains. And this okay. is what we do as cybersecurity professionals. Um, so that was an you example. You needed the, the sort of fake people to, to match up. That exactly. You needed those who is records and everything. We, as defenders, depend on all those adversary tradecraft mistakes. And I've always kind of made fun of them. Like, how hard could it be? Well, actually, dude, like when you're buying hundreds of domains a year, it's pretty easy to make one mistake. Like, you know, or another example, we use a VPN to connect in when we hack. Uh, our fake network. And we were going in from a Hong Kong IP address. Well, one day I screwed up, my VPN dropped, I didn't notice. And I did 30 minutes of work from my personal IP address from Dallas, right? And so now the traffic with the same user agent string shifts Mm. from uh, ExpressVPN in Hong Kong to, you know, Comcast Dallas. Well, these are the exact TTPs and mistakes that I look for as a network defender of trying to do attribution or determine who did what. And so what I found fascinating as we went through this, we actually wrote questions that were finding all the screw-ups that I made as an adversary, which was a lot of fun. So you um, embrace those mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. a huge yeah. part of it is you go through it and you're like, yeah, the, another perfect example of this is in one of the versions of Boston Sock, we wrote custom malware. And the custom malware, we actually 
uploaded into VirusTotal seven times with increasingly different, different changes to show, and this is something an adversary does, um, like they're trying to see if it will get past the antivirus client on the targeted hosts. And so we were uploading this malware seven different times until it gets a clean bill of health. Well, in order to upload, you have to use an account. Like you and, upload it so it looks like it's legit software? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, VirusTotal, if you're not familiar with it, has 70 plus virus engines. And you can actually, as a researcher, you can go in there, put a hash and find what has happened to it before. Well, what I forgot was I was actually uploading all these different versions under my personal VirusTotal account. And mm -hmm. so one time somebody answered one of the hardest questions in Boss of the Sock in 30 minutes. And it's because they had done reconnaissance before the competition of me. And they found malware samples being submitted by me into VirusTotal. And then they saw a question that came through that asked about that. And they just put one and two together and said, oh, it's probably this. And they submitted it. And so we went over and we're like, what do you think you cheated? He's like, I didn't cheat. I did this. And we're like, yeah, there you go. You get all the points. That's exactly the sort of behavior that you should do as an analyst. Um, wow. That was a fun one. The other one that I found is we tried to be very, one of the big things I see with CTFs is people to use intentionally broken or outdated software to try to make it easier to show oh, yeah. through. And we don't do that for Boss of the Sock. We use up-to-date systems. Um, oh, and we so do you're things... saying they'll be like, oh, we used Windows, but it like wasn't passed. Yeah, Windows so XP, SP3, yeah. weird. Yeah, or you know. Cisco, this you know, firmware version. You know, exactly. Yeah. So that we, has known vulnerability. We don't do that unless there's a very good reason. Like it's a very reasonable thing to have happen. Like, oh, well, that patch came out two months ago. Well, right. perfectly reasonable for a small company not to have patched their Cisco core router in two months for a non-critical vulnerability. Yeah, but you're not going to take yeah. advantage. Yeah, of but in this case, we were ago. using a Windows 2016 SP2 fully patched system. And I was like, cool, what I'm going to do is it's going to have a Joomla server. And the Joomla system, even fully up to date, is still buggy as hell. You know, I can do this. I'm going to do a password spray attack against it. I'm going to pivot in. I'm going to upload this Joomla module that overwrites permissions. That will let me update, upload an executable that will go into an externally executable directory, which will let me open up a shell. Then I'm in the shell and I'm going to pivot. And then I'm going to get user privileges. I'm going to pivot out of the jail and I'm going to get onto the system and I'm going to do more. Like that was the plan. Turns out a fully patched Windows Microsoft Server 2016 SP2 at the time was almost impossible to get out of the user level area they put you in. It, it's just incredibly well done. And so I spent about 25 hours just pounding my head, calling friends who are red teamers and hackers and like, how do I get out of this? They're like, well, you do this. I was like, no, that's not real. Like, that's not what would actually happen. And they went through, they're like, listen, you, what I would do is just give up and find a different way. And so I was like, <laughs> Well, that's totally reasonable. So the first version of Boss of Sock, you follow it, they do a website defacement of the Joomla website. And you can watch me pivot and try over and over again to bring in new hacking tools and to pound my head and to try to do directory traversal and to try to do buffer overflows and all this sort of stuff. And none of it works. And then I leave, which is 100% what happens in real life. So wow. the only thing that the adversary does in this case is defaces the external website because he gets access to Joomla but he's unable to break out user 32 land. Uh, he can't get out of user land yet. And that's all recorded in the log. So you can actually watch this entire frustrating journey of me pounding my head and screwing up commands and trying stuff. And it's all in the logs, it's all in the command line logs, it's all there. Uh, but that's another fun story of where the plan to the reality did not come through. Oh, that's, that's, that's cool. Really and I cool. like that you embraced all those things. So I know we're coming up on the end here. 
let's talk about future future facing without uh, without exposing anything that you're not supposed to expose um, about roadmap and whatnot. Like, what do you see artistically as the future of of surge or or you know what do you want people to walk away with like to keep an eye out for? So the big thing uh, we have a complete mantra on the team of pub- publisher parish. So every basically every week there will be some sort of content coming out starting December first. Um, myself and Mick Baccio, another member of Surge, doesn't work directly for me, but is part of the Surge team. We do a LinkedIn live show every two weeks uh, called Coffee Talk with Surge. Uh, we've now added Audra Streetman, who is a former investigative reporter. Uh, now she works for me on the, the Surge team, and she does a little bit of a news roundup, and we talk about our perspectives on the issues as cybersecurity veterans. Um, then we also are releasing a blog just about every week, a technical security blog just about every on week, Splunk every blogs. other week on Splunk Blogs. Um, and then once a quarter, kind of aligned to major conferences, we're going to be releasing a body of work, uh, the core of which will be a, a white paper. And then there will be a whole bunch of collateral material around that to kind of our mantra, not mantra, but the other team logo, other than fail less, is a blue collar for the blue team. And so everything we're doing is really around giving power back to the defenders. Like if you took the same brilliant minds that are focused on like the weirdest, edgiest emerging threat from this nation state actor with this crazy mutex malware. Like, I'm really glad there's wonderful human beings in the world who are working on that, but we do not need yet another security research team working on that stuff. So our entire focus is on up-leveling the blue team with that same level of rigor and creating material that will help them. So every quarter, not only there will be an academic-ish style white paper around that, there'll be collateral that explains that, breaks it down into different facets, looks at it from different angles, different personas. So RSA this year in February, releasing for sure one white paper on ransomware. Uh, Shannon Davis is looking at it from a, hey, how fast is ransomware encrypt? And how fast does ransomware decrypt? And oh, by the way, I have an unlimited Splunk license. Who in the world gets to say that except for us? So we're loading up you know, 10 million files into a system and encrypting them and using Splunk to actually analyze that. And we're doing it for a high spec system, a low spec system and a medium system. Uh, we're looking at decrypting that. How fast is ransomware actually decrypt? Is it worth your time? Is it worth your effort? Are there a difference between these larger ransomware families? You know, the, the Spunk Threat Research Team has done incredible work on ransomware detections. And now we're looking at it more holistically of, okay, but what about just what do you do with ransomware? And if you establish that there is no real solution once ransomware executes, then you kind of have to just accept that that is reality. And then you move what's known as left of boom. So there's a great white paper by CERT New Zealand, which talks about the basically 14-ish places that you can detect ransomware before it actually infects and impacts your system. So if you can accept that you've, you're failed, right? If you accept failure of once ransomware executes, you have failed, and then move, how do you find it all the way all the other places? There's a lot of interesting work that we as a company can do to help customers uh, and help the world. Other than that, we're looking at a lot of strategic partners, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with NATO right now. We're working with a couple other places to really show how Splunk can be helpful and solve these bigger cybersecurity problems in the industry. And that's what we're going to keep doing. Always fun when you can drop in a conversation. Oh yeah, I'm just, I'm working with NATO right now. Why would you, oh, you guys got coffee today? Okay, cool. Yeah, just, you know. It's fun. I, I mean, it's just a treaty or treaty organization. Living the life. So- this has been great. I've learned a lot. Um, I really appreciate you kind of coming and give us all, all the, the flavor and the context behind the, the things you've done. Um, I'm going to close with with a weird question. What What is that over the left shoulder there? Yeah, that one, that white. Um, yeah. We all had fun COVID 
uh, hobbies. My wife's COVID hobby was creating needlepoint embroidery. Um, so there's actually five or six dinosaurs in the room. I think you can see two more. Oh, oh neat. Yeah. Um, and they were all basically, um, you know, their, their default needlepoint, but uh, then she let me pick the decorations and the, uh, the words. So I'll, I'll show you some of them here. Uh, I apologize that this is now a rated R show, but we have <laughs> the Stegosaurus with the bloody dagger. Um, we have the orange dinosaur, don't stick oh, to the row. That's nice. And then this bite. So my additions are the colors, the decision for the, the biting and the logo. And then she did all the actual work. So I, I really just manage and lead now. That's my primary goal. Uh, <laughs> thought leader, THO of nice. teams. All right. That's awesome. Thanks for that. And Ryan, this has been, we appreciate it. Yeah, just wonderful uh, compliments to your wife for all the, uh, not only uh, stitching that she provided, but all of the uh, partnership that she's provided you to uh, facilitate some of the amazing jumps you've you've mentioned in a very respectful way. How how you know that partnership facilitated a lot of where you landed now. Um, yeah, it's to been a fun. You know, she's a, she's in the arts. She's a she has a PhD in medieval Spanish art, and she's actually director of an art museum in Dallas. That's why we came here. So it's always a fun. Wow. Um, whenever we go to parties, everyone else finds the other person to be the most interesting person in the room because it's so radically different oh, than yeah. what the other group is working on. So, so wonderful, wonderful friendship and relationship. Well, I guess we'll have to have our next podcast with her. <laughs> uh, she would love it. She uh, yeah. she edited my entire master's thesis, so uh, she is very up to date, a la 2012. So yeah. <laughs> up to then, up to that. Uh, thank you. Hal, any final thoughts? No, no. It's been awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Well, Jeff, thanks for uh, giving me a chance to knock off a, a Splunk bucket list item. And yeah. uh, I appreciate being here. All right. We're flattered we were on your bucket list. Um, everyone, thanks for uh, attending. Stay tuned for our next episode and happy Splunking. Oh, hello there. If you're watching this, that means you've finished watching our episode with Ryan Kovar. What you're about to see is a extra recording we did. And that extra recording is because we thought, and by we, I mean me, that the recording was actually interrupted. And so we decided it would be cute and fun to surprise Ryan and give him the time that he was cut out to hear more about uh, him and use uh, that to kind of be the end of the prior episode that was cut off. But the second mistake was that the episode wasn't actually cut off. Uh, it turns out that when editing, uh, we continued to talk during the recording so far after the episode had finished and we just let the recording keep going. So much so that when I was editing the episode, I thought that we were still in the episode and that when it terminated, it was because uh, the recording had been terminated and not because we had finished already and just left the recording going. So what you're about to hear is an unnecessary addendum that we added on to the episode, thinking that it was cut off when in fact it wasn't. So um, apologies for all these snafus. The time it took uh, to get this episode out, because as you can imagine, we had to record, then we had to re-record, and that required some rescheduling and some rescheduling, um, all to then find that when I went to edit those two together, 
turns out everything was fine all along. So um, I guess maybe there's a little uh, moral of the story is um, always do your research, have good attention to detail and um, have fun. So uh, I hope you enjoy this unnecessary addendum that's about to follow. Thanks and happy splunking. Hey, uh, good dog bark on cue there. We're, um, we're trying something we've never done before because we've had something happen that we've never done before. Ryan, congratulations. You are the guest for whom we have had our very first atrocious technical issue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we brought Ryan here without any knowledge of why we're here. And we wanted to get that honest laugh from him. Um, the recording that everyone has just listened to went up to an hour. And it was probably somewhere between an hour 15 and an hour 20-ish. It just stops. No static, no nothing. It just, as if the recording ended. Um, but we definitely kept recording. So um, we felt like that was kind of a weird way to end the episode and doesn't really like, do justice. I like yeah. the idea, like, no, we had an hour. That's all you get. Shut up. <laughs> Be more concise, Kovar. Yeah. Yeah. We, we gave you a so grace period did... of, I think, seven minutes. <laughs> so what we did, um, we have the transcript, and we're going to have everybody read your parts. Just it, All you have to do is you have to read it precisely as uh, written, I'm in. and it'll grow great. It was, it's that it high school drama transcript. finally pays off. Yeah. I mean, it's a machine transcript, so... Oh, it's going to be great. You know, I think there's also just one problem with our machine transcript. <laughs> um, you'll notice that we're handing you blank pages because that also terminated at the same moment. Okay. Okay. So it's really going to be sort of an improv. <laughs> so just like this. Yeah. Exactly. Got it? I'm in. I don't know what I just agreed to with the, the blanked out voice, but. Oh so, man, this is this is probably really great for the people listening to the audio yeah. feed. Just oh, the there. Can you I, hear I, the emotions? I just, just coming through. To, to you know, hang out with Ryan more. So yeah, that's the truth. Um, but we thought that hey, let's jump on. Let's get a, a couple more minutes with you so we can do a proper a proper closing. Make sure that like all the plugs you gave at the end, you know, places where people can learn more and that type of thing. Um, we obviously can't reproduce the uh, the beautiful. Mm -hmm recording that everyone missed but we can at least uh, it was incredible sure it. especially yes. the background angels that came in and sang and the trumpeting i mean it was just Ooh, miraculous wait a second i remember one specific thing that we should recreate the and doves I, no the dinosaurs oh um, yeah that's when we went to nsfw right oh now i see why you guys had a filter that cut all the nsfw mm. Mm. can't confirm or nor deny no, Can't but it just hit me that we did talk about the dinosaurs, but we, we did, did not. That would have been at the end, and I want. I don't remember that. this. Did we really? We we did, yeah. And this is where you said, "Oh, we're going to have to put an NSFW because I read what my wife lovingly embroidered onto my dinosaurs." Shall I bring those back over to remind you, Birch? Yes, I remember this now. The embroidery. There we go. So like Amazing. everyone else during pandemic, we all created hobbies um, to try to occupy our time before we die. Mm -hmm. 
and my wife was doing needlepoint and uh, we came up with a little agreement that she would pick the needlepoint pattern, but I would pick the colors and ask her to embroider extra things. So the first one we have, um, for those of you who are watching, I don't know if people watch as well, but we have a purple Tyrannosaurus Rex who has a yucca growing out of his back and he's taken a big bite out of the yucca and it says, this bites. Uh -huh. There we go, so that's the children's, uh, that's the children's safe one. Uh, here we have a, a Brontosaurus and that's the hill that I'll die on. Um, screw you, modern science. Um, and we have him with uh, surprisingly some cactus coming out of his back and don't stick me, bro. And then we have a little thag character in the background with a stick. So let me okay. let me get this straight. You, you're firm on that being a brontosaurus? Yeah. You're really going to stick your neck out on that one? Okay. I, well, well done on that pun. Um, but yes. Although okay. I believe science has resurrected the brontosaurus. So there's hope for Pluto as well. I, um, <laughs> I just try to ignore the changes and then just check in once every 10 years or so. That's not a yeah. bad plan. It's, I, I was just what, listening to the uh, Bill Bryson, a short history of everything. And like at the end of it, he had an update for all the things that changed in like the 15 years since he had written it, oh, wow. um, which was pretty good. Uh, here we have a triceratops with don't be a prick. And he has, you know, agave sticking out of his back. Nice. And then my personal favorite, the Halloween stegosaurus with i'll fucking cut you <laughs> and he's pulling a dagger with blood so there we go I love, your the moment. I love the colors and the execution on that thing thank you I, think... I you know my wife made them i feel like they're really mine though it's more of the workshop of kovar um, yeah did you upgrade your camera since uh, our recording because those pictures were rich i did yeah i went up to the next level of logitech um and also then got better sound i think as well so oh what do you got there is that a zoom handicap uh it is a well i have a road road speaker and then a logitech cr whatever version a nicer version of a camera uh which seems to do really well i'm very happy with it yeah looks good the the embroidery looked much richer than i remembered it which is interesting to say since at first i didn't remember it yeah i was going to say now you're just full of well, no. that's a whole different embroidery. Uh, a Logitech webcam C930 Echo. So there we go. Nice. Um, okay, so, you know, in the episode, everyone will hear a lot of um, interesting security discussion. We, we kind of wrapped up at the end before it got caught off talking about, like, the security industry. I had said something about, like, um, you know, I always thought it was, like, way too intimidating. And it, it, it's actually a lot of fun and very accessible. Um, and then the recording ends right there. That's all you need, uh, really. That's Done. all you need. Why are we here? I have but, a question specifically. In, so are security events back, coming back? What is the, you know, is there some vitality? You know, because uh, I think about security and I, and I think uh, B-sides. So are those yeah. things, uh, how's that they're, been going and are they coming back? They're definitely coming back. Uh, in fact, one of the guys on my team, Mick Baccio, is part of B-Sides uh, Charm City, which is in Baltimore. Um, and I know they're doing their in-person in uh, April, so next month. And then the big ones, uh, you know, Hacker Summer Camp in Las Vegas, um, DEF CON and Black Hat are both, from what I can tell, going forward. Um, I have hotel reservations for RSA in San Francisco. Um, and then a lot of the more smaller boutique conferences, uh, Shannon Davis, who's a guy on my team in Australia, he's attending something called TuskCon. He's speaking there. 
And that's actually an RV park where they rent out the entire RV park. And then they give, um, they basically do networking during the day. And then at night they set up a projector and they have fireside talks hmm. by the fireside uh, and they do presentations there. So, you know, things like that are coming back and um, yeah, I mean, COVID isn't over, but it's uh, apparently the world's just kind of choosing to move forward all the way. So all right, we've got we'll to see. find uh, our excitement and engagement um, to make all these things. It's more, you know, we're 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 people. We're, we need to be well rounded. Absolutely, it's it's yeah. something you know we were talking before we started recording just about the need to kind of get back in person and the the how much that invigorates people. And I know when I first joined Splunk, it always felt like I found the perfect mix. I love working at home, but I think for me, like the perfect mix is like every two months or so going into an office and like being around Splunkers and other coworkers and like having a really intense like thing and then like feeling very relieved to not have to work out an office and come back out <laughs> yep. and like yeah. then after about a month and a half i'm like i could see people and wear pants with belts and like go whoa. do things whoa yeah yeah to chill chill out a little bit so um wh what you know what i think last time we met it might have been around either right after log4j or right before um and we were talking about some of the announcements, the, the blog posts and stuff. Um, wh where do you want to send, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, where, where do you want to send people's focus to? Is there a call to action or uh, resources you want them to see now that there's been a little more of a rhythm on, on the team? Um, yeah, so we, we're publishing stuff fairly constantly on the blogs. So there's a very annoying beeping. Um, there's blogs that are coming out fairly regularly under the surge tag on the you know splunk.com slash blogs or whatever it is this month um there's also the web page search of inside of splunk which unfortunately is just a little bit hard to discover sometimes because uh, dealing with our website sometimes can be a challenge but um the final part is we also have a sign up for emergency alerts so if you're a customer and you kind of go through that you can actually sign up and if something like log for shell happens then we actually send out an email with all the guidance that comes through um, and then we are also doing every two weeks, uh, trying to replicate the Birch and Hal show, but every two weeks we are on LinkedIn Live and now YouTube uh, with Coffee Talk with Surge, which is a 30 minute show where we talk about the you know, most recent up to date security things and then Mick Bocci and I do a uh, what we call 60 second charity countdown. So we do a 60 second challenge where we try to explain a very technical or very large subject in 60 seconds or less. And then one of our co-hosts, uh, Audra Streetman, or our producer, Drew Church, will actually vote on the winner. And whoever loses has to uh, donate a $60 matching challenge in Benevity to a charity that we've chosen for that day. Uh, and quite often, the charity is so important to both of us, win or loss, lose, we both donate. So uh, last week we did, or actually yesterday, we did one. And we were talking about a recent piece of legislation that's passing around the 72 hours so basically organizations now, if a bill passes as signed by Biden, then organizations will have to tell CISA within 72 hours of being breached. And mm -hmm. the big question is what constitutes an, an incident or a breach? And that's a lot of what Mick and I talked about was we're in big favor of the bill, but it's kind of toothless because at any point you can just say, well, we didn't know it was an incident. So he and I kind of debated that for 60 seconds. And our charities were a, a Ukrainian charity, a Ukrainian Red Cross, I believe, and then also a uh, Australia charity for the folks in Brisbane and Eastern Australia who have really been impacted by the floods. 
and we have many good friends and um, customers and employees who live in that part of Australia who have been impacted. So that's a fun one. And that's probably the most relevant because every two weeks we kind of talk about what's happening and what we're doing and where you can access that. So LinkedIn Live under Splunk or on Splunk's YouTube on the Surge playlist. Wow. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, I'm excited. I'm a, I'm as well. Um, I think since, since our recording, um, I think I had the wrong spot on my mic. Uh, since our recording, I think we've also announced that um, Conf is going to be in June. So um, fingers crossed that uh, folks will be able to attend, be it in person or virtual, and really rejoice in some rich content. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, you know, on my team, people who work for me directly on search is uh, we have a publisher parish mandate. So every person on my team was required to put in a CFP for .conf. So hopefully we'll have a couple sessions from search. And I think I'll be doing one or two things, at least on stage, making myself be a fool uh, as always at .conf. So very cool. All right. Well, a lot of good stuff to look forward to. Um, Ryan, you know, when I think about all the guests that we've ever had um, and the people for whom, what? He was one of them. He was one of them. Uh, You might now count as our first return guest with an asterisk and the first one that we had massive technical issue. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. So thank you for rejoining us for this. There's one uh, thing that follows me through life is failure. So thank you, Birch, for continuing (laughs) that. All right. Well, that there's no better way to end it than, than to end on failure. There we go. That's our team motto. Birch, can you hit the start recording button? Yes, I will start recording right now. All right. right, Okay. Three from the top. Two, one. Bye. Hi, I'm Ryan Kovar. (laughs) 